Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of What They Aren't Telling You. I am your host, hostess, Melissa Floyd, and I hope everybody is doing as well as can be expected. It's kind of hard to figure out exactly how everyone is doing. I can't even keep up with all the different regulations, which states, which cities, which counties are technically open, partially open, where are the mask mandates, how strict are they on the mask mandates. I pretty much see universally hospitalizations, ICU visits and deaths have been down for months now. But yet we're in this never ending situation here where we cannot exist and interact with each other, even remotely close to how we used to. I mean, it's funny to see people going about their day as if this never happened, but only because they wear a mask every single place that they go. And that's what's required of them. And people do it because people want to go out to a restaurant. They want to go to the shopping mall. They want to go into Trader Joe's or whatever it is. So everybody's doing it, but they're going about their day like normal, just all with their faces covered. And if you've been tuning into my prior episodes, and if you've been doing any research on your own, you'll know that that science is beyond conflicting on whether or not masks do anything. But yet people are so desperate to be out in society again, they are signing on to this behavioral requirement just so that they can interact with people again, because sheltering in place is obviously so painful on so many levels. I have to say, I'm, I'm still so surprised. There are so many people complying. And my guess is if you are listening to this, you might agree with me on that. But I hope everyone is doing relatively okay. I don't know what to think. Everybody says, you know, things are going to calm down after the election. I don't know if that's true. This feels like this is a long-term game plan, and I can't quite pinpoint what it's going to look like in the future, but I'm certainly not feeling comfortable in any way that there is an end to this, really at any point. It feels like something is going to be altered permanently. And we will not be going back, which is what you've seen multiple newspapers and things say. So that makes me think that they're trying to normalize that concept too, just so that it's, it becomes a distant memory, how life used to be and how sad would that be? Um, I wanted to say really quickly, two things. If you love what you hear on this, join the multiple dozens. And I thank you guys so much that have supported monthly with a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars a month to keep this information coming out because they have expressed their appreciation for me and I appreciate them right back. So if you like this podcast and you've been wondering what's a way that I can kind of help out, you can do that directly by clicking on the link in the episode description of the podcast you're listening to right now. It might just be a small amount, but obviously when multiple people do that, it gives me the ability to pay for somebody to edit these so I don't have to spend the eight to 10 hours every episode. And that allows me to get them out a little faster, which is what I know you guys really want. So that's the first thing. You can become a supporter and I'm going to announce everybody on the next one. I'll be announcing you by first name only. Don't worry. Uh, Just as a, a, a gesture of gratitude for your support, which I really appreciate. And the second thing is... I had a wonderful gift arrive um, to my house by someone who was purchasing the Vax Facts 
and COVID cards and needed to send me a check in order to do that. And with her check, she sent these awesome different kinds of dates from her own farm uh, that she has with her husband. So it was so awesome. And I will give that information next time in case you want to check that out because they were really, really good. And I thought it was so sweet for her to send that. And so I wanted to offer that invitation. If you are a small business owner and your products are holistic, natural-based, some kind of natural food product or natural beauty product, something that is holistic care, private message me on Facebook or on Instagram. You can also contact the What They Aren't Telling You Facebook page, which I admit is hardly even anything at this point. I haven't put anything into that. I just post the episode descriptions just to have a page for that. But you can message me through that if you'd like. If there is something that you produce yourself that you want to share with me, I'd be happy to give you a little plug on the podcast. I would love to continue to be supportive of small businesses, especially during this time. And I love homemade and handmade and natural and all of that kind of stuff. So anyway, that's the business of the day, those two things. What are we going to talk about today? Today is a really cool article I came across that I want to go over with you guys. The title of this article is former chief science officer for Pfizer, says a second wave faked on false positive COVID tests and quote, the pandemic is over. This is written by a guy named Ralph Lopez. And he's basically discussing an interview with a man named Dr. Mike Yeadon. Okay, so he's a former chief scientific advisor for Pfizer. Okay, huge pharmaceutical company, actually the largest one in the world. So this article says, and this was just um, October 1st, so this is very new. In a stunning development, a former chief science officer for the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer says there is no science to suggest a second wave should happen. That was his quote. The big pharma insider asserts that false positive results from inherently unreliable COVID tests are being used to manufacture a second wave based on, quote, new cases. So let's think about this. If we have faulty tests, which I've been talking about for a while now, I talked about the Beta Sadler article where he's saying, Asymptomatic transmission, according to epidemiologists, does not exist. You can be mildly symptomatic, you can be pre-symptomatic, but you are not going to be symptom-free and infectious, and that is not driving this particular epidemic. So if you had tests that were faulty, giving positives to people who never had a single symptom, they didn't have a symptom before the test, during the test, after the test, but yet they had a positive result to think that they, quote, had it. I had COVID, but I had no symptoms, completely symptom-free. You'll see this sometimes in a work environment when 40 people test positive, 100 people test positive, 18,000 people test positive across Amazon or whatever it was. These are things that are happening. What if it's based on faulty tests? What if these tests are picking up these fragments of prior infections the way that Beta Sadler talked about it? That makes a lot of sense to me, but it's also very concerning because this is the marker we are using to reopen the economy and allow people to interact in society. This gentleman, his name is Dr. Mike Yeadon. 
So he's a former vice president and chief science officer. Okay, he was there for 16 years, just so you know. He says that half, this is his quote, half or even potentially almost all tests for COVID are false positives. Can you imagine if this was true? Half or potentially almost all of them are giving false positives. He said that the threshold also, something I've talked about, the threshold for herd immunity may be much lower than previously thought. And it may have been reached in many countries already. So I've posted about this. I don't know if I mentioned this in a podcast, actually, but I know I've posted about it. The HIT is the herd immunity threshold. Typically for an infection, it is 60 to 70%. 60 to 70% of a population needs to get that particular illness, develop antibodies for large outbreaks to stop. It doesn't stop all of it, but it definitely stops large outbreaks. This is natural immunity. Now with vaccines, they've basically tried to recreate that process with artificially induced herd immunity through vaccines. But with vaccines, you need a much higher percentage, sometimes 90, 95%, sometimes even higher to basically do the equivalent of what it would be if 60% of the population with a wild infection was happening. So it's interesting with COVID or with SARS-CoV-2 and this particular illness is some scientists are arguing we only need 15 to 20% population herd immunity to hit our herd immunity threshold, our HIT, for this particular illness. Now, this would not be true for a brand new virus or bacteria. And this goes back to the fact that maybe this isn't a novel virus after all. That was also in Beta Sadler's article. And I did that in a two-part episode. That was a really great article. If you haven't checked it out, go back to that episode. Is it, the, the title of the first one, is it really a novel virus? And he argues, as well as many others, that no, it's not a novel virus. In fact, not only is it really really closely related to SARS-CoV-1 from 2003, apparently around 80% similarity from 2003. So we have 17 years of that data. So when everybody says this is brand new, they're just figuring this out. Maybe that's not true. So not only that element, but also what they're finding because we've had so many coronaviruses just throughout our lives that were relatively harmless for us, there is so much cross-recognition in the T-cell immunity that you don't even have to be exposed to it to be protected from it. So it's one thing if somebody had the virus and now develops antibodies, that's one level of protection. But what they're saying is about 30% of the population is already immune without being exposed to it. So you have the portion of the population that's been exposed and developed antibodies, and you have another portion of the population that doesn't even need to be exposed to be immune. So you combine those things together and you're very close to that 60% of what you would think you would need for a population to stop outbreaks. So Dr. Yeadon was asked, this was the question he was asked, we are basing a government policy, an economic policy, a civil liberties policy in terms of limiting people to six people in a meeting, all based on what may be completely fake data on this coronavirus? This was the question. And he answered, yes. And then the article continues, even more significantly, even if all positives were to be correct, okay, let's say all the tests were correct. Dr. Yeadon said that given the shape 
of all important indicators in a worldwide pandemic, such as hospitalizations, ICU utilization, and deaths, quote, the pandemic is fundamentally over. So he's saying, let's say all those tests were accurate. If you were just looking at the typical markers any scientist or epidemiologist would look at to be charting the course of an epidemic in a society, the things you would be looking at would be hospitalizations, ICU stays, and deaths. And all three of those markers have been on the steady decline since late April. So he's saying, let's say the tests are completely accurate, just using the markers that we always use to mark the course of these epidemics, and the pandemic is fundamentally over. That's a direct quote. Again, this is a chief scientific advisor for a huge pharmaceutical company. So he also said, were it not for the test data that you get from the TV all the time, you would also probably conclude that the pandemic was over because nothing much has happened. He said, of course, some people are going to the hospital now as we approach autumn flu season, but there is no evidence to suggest a second wave should happen for coronavirus. So when looking at the data from the UK, Sweden, the US and the rest of the world, what he's pointing out is that in all cases, deaths were on the rise in March through mid or late April and then began tapering off in a smooth slope, which flattened around the end of June. And it continues to today to stay flat like that. The cases, however, jumped up and that's all to do with testing. But as far as actual death and hospitalizations and ICUs, he's saying whether you're looking at the UK, Sweden, the United States, the rest of the world, these patterns, he even says the graphs are like carbon copies of each other during that time frame. So after, so after talking about that prior T-cell immunity, he goes on to mention that COVID can have after effects, right? This is kind of the thing you're hearing a lot of people talk about now. Oh, COVID might be mild, but it's the long-term effects. It's going to cause all these awful things to happen to the young and healthy. And I can't, I just can't even explain like how much reaching has gone on for the entire thing right? As soon as at the very, very, very beginning, so the end of January, very early February, they were definitely trying to play this all down, right? But something switched and then it was total hysteria from then on. Every time that we came to a position where we found, oh, it's not so serious, it's not so bad, they came up with another way to make it look serious, another way to make it look bad, there was the time that we've got this MIS-C illness in children, the mystery Kawasaki-like disease in children. Oh, you thought children were safe? Guess not. Now all these children are falling ill with this terrible, potentially fatal illness. Well, that's all gone away now. Doesn't make sense if that's a direct relation to COVID. And then now they're saying, oh, yeah, you think COVID is mild, but you're going to get all these things after the fact. It's like every time we have good news when we look at the data, Somebody's trying to point out something to continue keeping everyone in a state of fear. That's part of why I think they're keeping the mask mandates. I think visually, when you see a population of people wearing something over their face, it's a constant reminder. Germs, sickness, illness, danger, worry, fear. 
It's a constant reminder. People are so used to wearing masks now that when they're not wearing one and somebody comes next to them, it's like you can see them basically going into this auto protect mode. You know, don't even think about the fact that they were just touching everything with their bare hands that are also touching their mask and their face and all of their personal items that they bring home. Nobody's really thinking about that. But this is how you program people to be afraid. You talk about it all the time. You find new things. Oh, potential new danger of COVID tonight at six o'clock. You know, you find new things over and over and over to keep people worrying just when they thought it was okay, just when they thought we were over this, just when they thought healthy people are fine and this is all done. And what this chief science officer is saying, according to the graphs, which are just like every other viral curve, looking at countries across the world, this is over. It's been over. And yet we're still treating it like we're in the peak. In fact, during the peak, there were no mask mandates. We are so far removed from the peak and mask mandates are only getting crazier, stricter. The public's view of people that don't wear masks getting stronger, more hateful. It doesn't quite make sense to be coming from April, so May, June, July, August, September, October, six months past the peak, and now people want to go crazy about masks? When the deaths have been steadily declining for those six months, and when you look at countries like Sweden, their deaths are almost at zero after following that same curve. We're the ones, and these countries that have prolonged all this, we're the ones that continue to have numbers. So even those are, even though ours are declining, they're still higher than they should be, based on the way that we've handled this whole thing. So when everybody tries to say that COVID's gonna have these long-term effects, this is what he said. He said, although COVID can have serious after effects, so can the flu or any respiratory illness. People are forgetting. Some of these things that people are saying are triggered by COVID are triggered in other people every other year by other respiratory illnesses like the flu. But nobody's talking about it. Nobody ever brought that to the news. It wasn't a big deal. It was just what happens when you go through a serious infection. And again, that could be serious based on your health condition prior to getting it. Sometimes things happen after the fact because of the strong immune response. But that's not unique to COVID. That's a characteristic of all illness, especially respiratory illness. But they're trying to make it seem like COVID's causing things that usually wouldn't happen. And of course, that's completely misleading. So they say when Dr. Fauci originally had the estimates for the mortality, he said it would only have a 94% survivability rate, which would be a 6% mortality rate. And that's very, very high. But turns out that is 20 to 30 times higher than the actual. And 20 to 30 might not sound like a very big number, but remember, double is two times. So 20 to 30 times the estimate of mortality. And this is a guy who has spent decades in infectious disease. And again, you can't say this is a new virus because there's too much similarity to what came before with SARS-CoV-1, 17 years worth of data. So one would have to come to the conclusion that they overestimated mortality on purpose. Because isn't that the easiest way to kick into high gear this public fear. So according to Dr. Yeadon, they're accepting what the CDC concluded in their most recent 
recap of all of this, which is a 0.26% mortality. Now, according to the World Health Organization, globally, that's actually 0.13%, and that just came out recently. So any way you look at it, even with the 0.26%, Fauci overestimated the mortality so greatly that it's a wonder we're not celebrating when we realize how low these numbers are. And so Dr. Yeadon also talks about this novel idea. He said it, this virus is novel only in the sense that it's a new type of coronavirus, but he said there are presently four strains which currently circulate freely throughout the population, most often linked to the common cold. He said there are at least four well-characterized family members, and he names them, which are endemic and cause some of the common colds we experience, especially in winter. They all have striking sequence similarity to the new coronavirus. In other words, if it has that much similarity, how novel is this really? And if it's not that novel, why are we flip-flopping on our medical advice? Is it maybe to confuse people, to make it easy for them to divide, to make it easy for them to be unsure about pushing back when restrictions are happening and liberties are being taken away? So the article author says that the scientists argue that much of the population has already had, if not antibodies to COVID, some level of T-cell immunity from exposure to other related coronaviruses, which have been circulating long before COVID-19. He says, a major component, this is Dr. Eden, a major component of our immune systems is the group of white blood cells called T cells, whose job it is to memorize a short piece of whatever virus we were infected with. So the right cell types can multiply rapidly and protect us if we get a related infection. Responses to COVID-19 have been shown in dozens of blood samples taken from donors before the new virus arrived. So check that out. If somebody might be saying, well, how do you know you haven't been exposed to it and have that T-cell immunity? They checked blood samples from prior years before this thing was even here and found there was sufficient immunity to protect that person. So he continues, it is now established that at least 30% of our population already had immunological recognition of this new virus before it even arrived. COVID-19 is new, but coronaviruses are not. So again, 30%, that's a very high number. So they go on to say, because of the prior resistance, only 15 to 25% of a population being infected may be sufficient to reach herd immunity, like I mentioned before. And they basically believe we've already achieved it where we are now, because according to the data, if we have 200,000 people that have died, the survival rate is 99.8 and higher, which means for every person that died, 400 people that were infected lived. And of course, lots more uh, that exist here are just never infected. So that would equate to about 80 million Americans being infected, or 27% of the population. So this hits their herd immunity threshold, and this is what they feel explains why we're at the end of this pandemic. They say, current literature finds that between 20 to 50% of the population display this pre-pandemic T-cell responsiveness, meaning we could adopt an initially susceptible population value from 80% to 50%, 
the lower the real initial susceptible, the more secure we are in our contention that a herd immunity threshold has been reached. So if 20 to 50% already have that T-cell immunity, then you combine that with the 27% that's already had this, and you're maximum here now at 77% of the population either having had it and developed antibodies or having prior T-cell immunity from related coronaviruses. 77% is way higher than the herd immunity threshold that you would need for any type of contagious virus. So as it relates to the false positive test, the PCR tests, what they say is more than half of the positives are likely to be false, potentially all of them. Okay, this is a group of scientists that put together this paper, including Dr. Yeadon, who again, 16 years as, you know, a chief scientific advisor for a humongous pharmaceutical company. So you could say he has basically access to the best of the best information, and he clearly has to be an extremely good researcher or scientist to be in the position that he was in. And he is saying, quote, more than half of the positives are likely to be false, potentially all of them. Man, and how could we find this out? Because this is the kind of information the public deserves to know. So the authors explain that the PCR test, right, can measure these partial RNA sequences that could be part of a dead virus. These are dead particles of a virus that cannot make anyone sick. They cannot be transmitted. And obviously, it doesn't matter if you have a positive test result What matters is if you are infectious. Those two things don't mean the same thing. I am shocked by the number of people that try to act like I could be totally asymptomatic and be willing to pass this on to somebody else because of my selfish behavior if I don't wear a mask or I don't get tested every week or whatever it is. They're thinking they can be entirely healthy and just have this huge infection happening in their body without them being aware of it at all, even though that doesn't happen with any other infection. And they're going to pass it on to somebody and then that person's going to die from it. I mean, there are so many people that think like this, but it just doesn't make sense if you look at other types of pathogens. Again, you can be mildly symptomatic and you can be pre-symptomatic, but you cannot be straight symptom-free, completely symptom-free, and be infectious. And what Dr. Scott Jensen said is there's this discussion of viral load, that if you even have mild symptoms, you have less chance of being able to infect somebody else than somebody who has very strong symptoms and is very symptomatic. This is not like a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. Oh, positive test result, you're like a walking, you're, you're a walking Petri dish that's going to, you know, kill everybody left and right of you. That's kind of how it's portrayed, unfortunately, but it's almost like everybody forgot their basic biology and science 101 classes they took in school. So what they say is, quote, a true positive does not necessarily indicate the presence of viable virus. In limited studies to date, many researchers have shown that some subjects remain PCR positive long after their ability to culture virus from swabs has disappeared. We term this a cold positive to distinguish it from a hot positive. Someone actually infected with the intact virus would be a hot positive. The key point about cold positives is that they are not ill. They are not symptomatic. They are not going to become symptomatic. And furthermore, they are unable to infect others. 
this is so important and we should really be talking about this. The mainstream media should be talking about this. The positive test is not the be all and end all. We, it might not even be accurate at all. What matters is if you are capable of spreading actual infection. And these PCR tests are picking up false positives long after the patient is infectious. This is what they are saying. They even reference a lab, a testing lab that was in Boston earlier this month that was doing coronavirus testing, and they ended up having to suspend the lab because they had 400 false positives that were discovered. And that's just what they discovered. And that's just one lab. You can imagine if they really did the research on this, we would probably see this almost everywhere. So the author of the article says that an analysis of PCR-based tests at a medical website says, quote, data on PCR-based tests for similar viruses show that PCR-based testing produces enough false positive results to make positive results highly unreliable over a broad range of real-world scenarios. So we're talking about the thing that is necessary for us to go back to life, testing, testing, testing. And everywhere we look, the testing is unreliable. It's not necessarily accurate. It may pick up your prior infections. It may be giving you false positives. How are we not up in arms about this? I mean, I know many of you are, but how are we not as a society demanding better? I would actually love to get an antibody test, but I don't trust them because I feel I already had it. I don't trust the accuracy of these antibody tests, just like the PCR tests. I think the antibody tests are giving a lot of false negatives, and I think the PCR tests are giving a lot of false positives. So coming back to Neil Ferguson, and I'm going to do an episode directly on the comparison between the Imperial and the Oxford models because... It's really important to understand those to kind of understand what happened when this all went down. But Dr. Yeadon talks about Neil Ferguson because he actually used to work with him on some level as a colleague. And he says, quote, no serious scientist gives any validity to Ferguson's model. Okay, remember Ferguson's model is from the Imperial College, and that's the one that originally said 2.2 million Americans would die and 500,000 people in the UK would die as a result of this if we did not do a very strict lockdown. And according to Dr. Yeadon and his colleagues, lockdowns don't work. And looking at all of the evidence and looking at all of the shape of the death curves and the time curves, he said there is a natural progress that has nothing to do with human interventions. The profile of all of these countries, including Sweden, comparing it even to the UK is very similar in that time frame. Meaning one country did lock down, one country didn't. The curve is still the same. But Dr. Yeadon is not very impressed with Neil Ferguson, as many of us are not either. Remember also the Imperial College is funded. The second largest funder is Bill Gates. And Bill Gates wants to create the mass vaccination program for this. Nobody's going to want to universally be vaccinated across a population unless they're very, very fearful. In order to have that fear, you really have to put out there that a bunch of people are going to die if we don't do this. And fear is kind of the key component to this entire thing. He even says, it's important that you know most scientists don't accept that Ferguson's model was even faintly right, but the government is still wedded to the model. 
And that's what's happening. The governments chose to go with a model that even scientists don't support because they realize that it is not based on anything tangible. According to Neil Ferguson's model, by the way, he predicted for Sweden that they would have had 100,000 deaths by June. Their death count now in October is 5,800. 100,000 estimated with no lockdowns. And everybody said Sweden would pay the price. Actual number, 5,800. 5,800 compared to 100,000. And the Swedish government basically says that this number is very close to what their yearly flu season would be, just slightly higher. And even though the per capita rate used to be higher for Sweden compared to the United States, it is now lower. I used to get a lot of people commenting, oh, really? But per capita, Sweden's death count, you know, is worse. Well, turns out that's actually now dropped lower than the United States' death rate per capita. And of course, we know Sweden didn't have the same type of economic disaster that we had. And I just saw a video today of somebody walking around in Sweden looking at what life is like and life does look normal the way it used to be, not this new normal, but regular normal normal. And how could that possibly be for the one country that chose to defy everyone else and make sure their policies were only based on evidence alone? And if there was not enough evidence, they were not going to put policies in place, including mask mandates, which they did not put in place either. So Dr. Yeadon, just so you know, also, his unit that he works, he has a biotech company, his unit at Pfizer is asthma and respiratory research. So this is not some general doctor in one other area that's unrelated. We're talking about respiratory research. Specifically, this guy would have the information relating to an illness that's a contagious respiratory illness. And even he says everything that we've been saying here for the last several months. And he essentially validated everything. It's another expert to say the same thing. And everybody wants to say, oh, you don't listen to medical experts. Here is one. Here is what he's saying. It's the unpopular opinion, but it's backed by evidence. Those are the ones I pay attention to. He makes a lot of sense. He reinforces everything that I've read over the last seven months, cumulatively putting that together. And watch, this guy's information won't make it anywhere. He won't be in any major publication. He won't be on the news. They won't say, oh, this doctor has come up with an interesting theory. Nobody's going to give this guy the time of day, even though he has the expertise and the experience and the knowledge to weigh in on this. But because it's not popular, it won't be seen, which means the public won't even have access to seeing another side. And that really is a shame. Anyway, thank you guys for joining me on this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed this article. Once again, the name of it was former chief science officer for Pfizer says second wave faked on false positive COVID tests. The pandemic is over. The author is Ralph Lopez and this was October 1st. You can go check it out yourself and print it out, bring it with you, go over it again, get to know the data a little more, look into that study and as always stay informed. Thanks for listening and I will catch you on another episode of What They Aren't Telling You.